Oh God, you all right? We fun, we need to do an episode where we have to look for your sense of humor. Repossessed is funny. Radio Drome. I'm Josh Hadley, and I swear I'm not crazy yet. I'm not successful enough yet. With me to counter my not crazy is Cecil. Apparently I am crazy. Or I'm crazy and you're not because you're the counter to me. Because apparently we don't fight enough. <laughs> you shut up. No, you shut up. <laughs> And uh, Peter will not be with us this week because I'm not covering for him anymore. He's whacked out on cough medicine tonight and can't do it. I swear I'm not making that up. Come on, Peter, get straight. You've got a problem, man. You have to face this. Hi, as a kite, folks. Goofballs. There you go. That makes sense. Cough medicine is Canadian goofballs, isn't it? It certainly is. If you want to get something else, you go to adamandeve.com. This is something like to go up you or you can go up. Go to adamandeve.com, <laughs> use the promo code DROME, and you will get six free DVDs, a free mystery gift, a gift for him, a gift for her, and free U.S. shipping. All you have to do is use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. Tonight we're going to talk about a certain wave of filmmakers kind of lost it after a while and i want to examine each of their filmographies obviously not every film why they kind of lost it because you had this movement in the late 70s coming off of the new hollywood movement and jaws and star wars ushering in you know the whole blockbuster thing where studios would give directors full control you saw this huge wave of just originality and uniqueness coming in I mean, you had John Carpenter's and George Romero and John Landis and Mel Brooks. I mean, Mel Brooks comes from the 50s and 60s, but he didn't hit his, hit his stride till the 70s. In the later 70s, early 80s, you had the Sam Raimi's and the Wes Craven's and the Tim Burton's and the Toby Hooper's and that. And all of these guys kind of lost their shit around the early 90s. They kept making movies. They just weren't making good movies anymore. What prompted this was I was watching a, I don't know, maybe around 97, 98 documentary from the BBC called John Carpenter, The Man, The Myth, The Movies. In it, his most recent films were John Carpenter's Vampires and Village of the Damned, in which he talks about how Dark Star and Assault on Precinct 13 were okay for first films. But really, Village of the Damned and Vampires are the films he's always wanted to make and he thinks are true John Carpenter movies. And I went, what? Those movies are awful, and Darkstar and Assault and Precinct 13 are fantastic. So what he was basically saying is, those are the movies I just kind of made. I really wanted to make garbage like Village of the Damned and Vampires. Yeah, I think that uh, in general, uh, I agree and disagree. Uh, I mean, putting a blanket statement saying that all of these directors lost their shit in the 90s, I don't think that all of them did, but we'll get into them because we're going to talk about them individually. With Carpenter, uh, it's what I said on Facebook. Like, he was promoting his most recent movies, especially Vampires. And Vampires is not 
garbage vampires. It has a lot of redeeming qualities about it. It is a lesser Carpenter movie, but it is not anything near a bad movie. Now, Village of the Damned, I will say, is probably my least favorite Carpenter movie. I, I think I see what he was going for, and he was trying, you know, it was a it was a remake, which I'm not really huge on, but that was back when... I didn't like the original to begin with, so that's a point against Mm. it right away. Yeah, I thought that the, you know, the concept and everything was good, and and I think that it it could have used a really good update, and I don't really know enough about it, but I just know that I didn't like it, and uh, I'm kind of uh, indifferent on the original as well. I think that it's very creepy-looking, with uh, with the creepy kids and uh, you know their their telekinetic powers and uh, mind control and all that stuff, but uh, the bloodening. Just... Oh, is that the Simpsons one? Yeah, the Simpsons was the bloodening. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. I I just didn't like it, uh, and I I don't think that he lost anything. I think that uh, it was taken away from him because. When he was putting out, um, you know, you you don't have somebody like that who just makes like awesome movie after awesome movie. And still, whenever he's interviewed, he's very humble. He's very cool. He talks about his stuff very well. Like he he enjoys a lot of his movies and uh, he's very open and honest about different things. Like I was watching a thing on um, he was talking about Starman. Originally, somebody had shot a uh, special effect within Starman. And they were saying that, uh, you know, it was like, well, how come, you know, will you ever release this? And he's like, no, because it was awful. You know, like that kind of honesty you don't really get with a lot of uh, directors, especially with a lot of like today's directors where it's just everything uh, that they do is great and they never uh, will crap on the system. Or you have somebody like Josh Trank who ruins his own career and craps on the wrong, you know, craps at the wrong time. He has been a brilliant director. He's made amazing movies. Even his lesser movies, they still are shot well. It's just that they have production problems or whatnot. But in the 90s was when Hollywood began to change and they started looking at things more from a more money perspective. They were always about making money. But in the 90s is when you started having actors that got 20 million dollar paychecks and you started having movies that were 100 million plus dollars. And here's a guy who makes incredible movies for not a lot of money comparatively. His movies, they would, you know, they cost, you know, X amount of money and they would always pull in with the exception of, you know, a few movies that just didn't do well here and there. But consistently, he made very good movies that pulled in a profit. And now they were looking to make hundred million dollar movies that made five hundred million dollars. And he's the kind of director who he would make a three million dollar movie and would make twenty million dollars. He just started kind of getting phased out. And it's depressing. And that's why after Ghosts of Mars, he more or less kind of retired for a while. He came back, he did the the two Masters of Horror thing, and then he did the ward where he was like a gun, you know, a hired gun. I think that's what he was on the Masters of Horror, too. Mm-hmm. There, there are no John Carpenter style. There's zero John Carpenter style in those Masters of Horror episodes. Those Masters yeah, of Horror he... episodes were all based on a relatively set of relatively clever scripts, and I could not see any John Carpenter in there. If I didn't see his name on the credits, I would have never guessed those were John Carpenter directed. 
Well, the whole Masters of Horror thing, I, I think that there is definitely a documentary waiting to happen there. Because if you look at all of these directors that got episodes on Masters of Horror, none of them are particularly good. <laughs> like, there's some that are better I, I, than others. I, I, I disagree with that. I thought Joe Dante's two segments were very good. John Landis, the, the Dear Woman segment, was fantastic. I thought Don Coscarelli's Incidents on and Off a, a Mountain Road. First of all, I thought the plot twist was absolutely brilliant, but I thought that was incredibly well done. John McNaughton's incredibly disturbing episode, which actually got pulled at one point. The Tashahashi Tashi, Mikkei episode, which was disturbing as hell. I actually think the first season was really solid only had like lucky mcgee's and there was one or two others that really fell flat for me i thought the first season of masters of horror was dead on i look forward to that every week season two got really was weaker and then season three aka the nbc season fear itself was just kind of bad yeah incident on and off a mountain road was pretty badass that (laughs) That was probably my favorite and the plot twist, which I'm not going to spill here, was so expertly set up, but I never saw it coming. Yeah, it um, it made me sad because Don Coscarelli, it just reinforced how good of a director he is. And then it's like, oh, wait, he's barely doing anything anymore because, again, in the 90s, things changed. And a lot of these classic directors were being phased out by Michael Bay's buddies. Giant budget films and pull in, you know, uh, you know giant uh, returns. There's that, but I actually think it's right as the 80s were ending, there was a certain movie that changed Hollywood, and that was Batman. Batman, when that became such a hit in 89, that told the studios, Tim Burton had relative creative control on that, but he has admitted he's had a, he had a lot of, quote, input from Warner Brothers executives. And I think they saw that, oh, our input is what made this movie the blockbuster it is. So you started to see... All of these auteurs who were coming up through the 70s and 80s, all of a sudden they had their power taken away from them. I mean, I'm looking at like John Carpenter's career here. They Live was the last movie he really had creative control on, and that was 1988, right before Batman. I'm looking at George Romero's. What's the last film he had creative control on? Monkey Shines, 1988. I'm looking at John Landis. I'm looking at all these guys. It's right as we're transitioning from Batman changing everything. That's that's when everything seemed to change. I disagree with Carpenter, though. You're telling me that In the Mouth of Madness is not a Carpenter film, like, through and through, and that was 94. Mouth of Madness, maybe. Escape from L.A.? Escape from L.A., I'm not sure about, because that... Well, it's a, it's, it's a uh, carbon copy retread of the first film, but it's so fun. Well, the thing with Escape from L.A. that I since found out after I did my episode, and I don't know how much truth is behind this, but I've had numerous people who I've talked to that uh, seemed to really know what they were talking about. Escape from L.A. Uh, was a satirical remake of the original film, and that's kind of why it, it is uh, so kind of goofy, where the first one was a lot more serious. Plus, something that I've had a few people tell me was that one of the reasons why the effects were so bad, while he was working on the movie, they were having all the special effects rendered and whatnot. And that was back when, you know, it took quite a while to get all that done. Well, the studio moved the release date up. By almost so, four, he lost four months of post-production time. Exactly. So they had to release all of these special effects shots that were quintessential to the movie unfinished. 
Like, so that's why, like, they look so bad. They would have looked so much better had they have not moved it up. I mean, they lost four months of basic, you know, of animation and rendering time. And and then, of course, uh, with a lot of th- that stuff, you know, they blame the director. And it's like, no, it, it, it this stuff wasn't done in camera. You can't uh, you can't expect something to look that good when it's supposed to be done in post when which is one of the reasons why I, I have a beef with too much CG reliance, CGI reliance. But that, again, wasn't his choice. He didn't want to do it. But the studio, when they were giving him the thing, it was like, well, we're going to do these CGI effects and all this stuff. And and it just uh, it. it ended up screwing him in the end. Now, Coscarelli didn't direct Phantasm Ravager, and we haven't seen the film yet, but they just released right before Christmas a new trailer for it, and it's got right out of the box after effects for head explosions and and gunshot squibs. And I and that really does not load me with a lot of high expectations that this movie is going to be any good when I literally can do the same effects on my laptop. Yeah, it's it's a shame. I, I don't um, I, I'm hoping that it's good because uh, it would be nice, especially because Angus Grimm just died. But um, I don't know. That I'm new inter- trailer really does not look good. Well, when it comes to these these directors, this wave that came in in the late 70s and the early 80s, let's look at some of the some of. I, I made a list of some of the ones I think really started to lose their their crap. Now, some of them, they did correct themselves for a little bit, like George Romero. Okay, Two Evil Eyes was kind of a train wreck. The Dark Half was a studio film through and through. And then Romero didn't do anything for seven years. And he comes back with Bruiser, which was all right. And Land of the Dead, which I thought was a fantastic film. But then he gets total creative control back and he makes Diary of the Dead and Survival of the Dead, both of which are pretty bad. The first 35 minutes of Diary I loved, but then it totally falls apart when badass Amish Punisher dies. The whole movie falls <laughs> to pieces. Come on, he was the he was the oh, best he was, character in the film. He was great. He should have lived through the whole thing, but I like Diary of the Dead. I don't think that uh, it it definitely The third act you cannot deny is a complete mess. No. It got less good when badass Amish Punisher died, but I still enjoyed it. And I saw what he was trying to do with Survival of the Dead, but there was way too much CGI, especially for somebody who grew up doing practical effects and probably could have done the same movie for the same budget without all the stupid CGI and it would have looked good. I don't know why. Is there some weird clause now where people have to use CGI? Annoyed when I'm watching a movie now, like um, I love the Expendables movies and their throwbacks to the old 80s action movies. Why are they using CGI blood squibs? Like, why aren't you using just regular squibs? Why? Like, sometimes, sometimes they look fake. They do, and sometimes that's a prerequisite. Phil Tippett, it was on one of the RoboCop releases. You know, they've only released that movie on DVD with different extras like nine times now. <laughs> it was on one of the RoboCop releases where he was talking about he did all the stop motion brad 209 and all this stuff and he said this was right at the time when cgi was coming in and he said now he'll still get calls oh you know your oscar winner phil tippett blah 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 we want this and this done he's like all right i can do it on for this budget and he got and then he he said he pauses and go, they go you are going to do it on a computer right that they want cgi they don't want practicals you lose the job if you say you're going to do practicals well, that look is at part the- of the problem now well, look at the uh, the the thing um, prequel. They did the entire movie with practical effects, 
And one of the producers came back after the movie was done and said, no, I don't want this practical. Go back and redo everything with CGI. No, do, do you know what you know what the actual quote was, according to Tom Woodruff Jr., the head of the special effects department? Well, I'm paraphrasing. It. Well, what was it? It looks too much like an 80s movie. Right. And that was but- the point. That was the point. It was supposed to take place before this thing. And the thing was, it still, it looked amazing. Company that did the effects, they released images of all the stuff that they had. And they were like, look at all of this work that we did. They And the thing is, they have the movie finished with all the practical effects on there. And the studio still only released the CGI version. I still it think still that it wouldn't have been a good movie. The script is a train wreck, but I disagree, but we've argued on this before. I think it's a good movie and it would have been a great movie had they have used all the uh, original practicals that they had uh, they had on there cuz if you do a Google search for uh the thing whatever 2006 whatever year it was practical effects and it'll blow your socks off. 20 was it really? Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess it was sooner. Um, my time frame is all messed up anymore. But anyway, yeah, 2011. Uh, and be pr- pr- be prepared to be blown away by how good these practicals were and how stupid the producer was for doing making them do that. Well, what about a filmmaker that like like Mel Brooks? You know, he's been doing this stuff since the 60s. He really came into his own in the 70s when he made Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, Silent Movie, High Anxiety, and then by 1981, History of the World Part 1. Mel Brooks was like an unstoppable force. And then, well, Spaceballs was entertaining, but it had a lot of problems. Life Stinks was terrible. Robert Menetites was not funny. And Dracula Dead and Loving It is arguably one of the worst comedies I've ever sat through in my life. And you go, what the hell happened to Mel Brooks? Okay. Robin Hood Men in Tights is goddamn hilarious. I saw that Uh, in the theater, and no, it's not. Yes, it is. I've seen it numerous times, and I I have it on disc, and it's awesome. Baseballs is probably not... I don't know if it's... It's no Blazing Saddles or Young Frankenstein. I don't know if it's my favorite, but I mean, it just... I don't know. It just works for me so well. And I agree. Dracula Dead and Loving It is not good. It's not terrible but it's not up to snuff with uh young frankenstein and blazing saddles and space balls i think what happened was simply that comedy changed and we started to get parody movies that were the now i realize this wasn't until later but we were getting parodies of the seltzer and freeberg variety parodies but they weren't funny you know, it was just, hey, we're going to throw a bunch of crap together and make references to stuff. And somehow that's funny. Whereas the uh, the airplane. I, I was just about to say, I think you're thinking of the later Zaz movies because the seven, Zaz would be a great one. Zucker, Abram, Zucker. Look at the stuff they did in the 70s and early 80s. It was brilliant. Look at the Police Squad TV series. Oh, that is that's... so funny. And then you look at the stuff they started doing right around 1990 and you're like, wow. These are terrible. Like, like, remember Repossessed? Uh, Repossessed is funny. Come on. Repossessed. Oh, this is why you're always wrong. You undercut your own credibility. I am right. Repossessed is funny. Come on. The entire joke of the movie is, look, Linda Blair gets possessed by the devil again. She's been repossessed. That's the only joke for 90 freaking minutes. Oh, God. You All right. We, We need to do an episode where we have to look for your sense of humor. 
Repossessed is funny. It's it's a little okay. It's a lot dated now, but comedies uh, are one thing that have a really hard time out of all the genres. It's hard for comedy. I mean, every now and then you'll get something uh, like a Blazing Saddles or a History Blazing of the World Saddles Part is timeless. One. For Mel Brooks, while I think Young Frankenstein is easily his best movie, my favorite movie of his is History of the World Part One. <laughs> oh, the little fag gets it. <laughs> there you go. You know, God damn, that movie's hilarious. They shove a living snake up your ass. Ah, no, but very creative. <laughs> to this day, there's a line I still quote from that. Whenever I think somebody's crazy, I go, "You are nuts." N v t s nuts. <laughs> I still say that to to, the, to this day. So while History of the World Part 1 might not be his best movie, it's my favorite. Nobody can deny that Young Frankenstein is his best movie, though. What about like a John Landis? I've long been on record. I think John Landis is a, is a murdering bastard because of, you know, his actions on the Twilight Zone movie. That doesn't change the fact that he was a great director in the 70s and 80s. And I'm looking and I'm like, you know, he's got Blues Brothers, Animal House, Kentucky Fried Movie, Werewolf in London, Trading Places, Twilight Zone, Spies Like Us, which I don't care what anybody says. I enjoyed Spies Like Us coming yes. to America. And then I'm going, wait a minute, there's not... He directed like 20 extra things on here, some of them TV, after that, and there's not one good one. It's like John Landis just lost his mind after coming to America. It's like he said, nah, I don't need quality anymore. I'm already rich. Okay, Innocent Blood is terrific. I think Innocent Blood's a better idea than it is a film. I didn't like the film, but I loved the idea. No, Innocent Blood was terrific. As bad as it is, The Stupids, I think, is hysterically funny. Blues Brothers 2000 is probably 2000. the dumbest the, the dumbest thing that anyone ever thought would be a hit. Blues Brothers 2000, I don't know what they were thinking. I don't know what they were who they were targeting and it just like what? Like it, it doesn't make any sense. Like why would you make like a follow-up to a pretty R-rated movie and and put a kid in it and I, I don't know, it just I mean I like John Goodman a lot and I like Dan Aykroyd but I, I don't know I think that that whole thing just they had because uh, I know weren't they doing a thing with um, without Belushi for a while where they were kind of traveling around and maybe showing up on Saturday Night Live and, and doing the Blues Brothers thing and then they were somebody got the brilliant idea of doing Blues Brothers 2000 but making it like a kid friendly movie and but, uh, but what what nobody ever saw because they never aired UPN had a Blues Brothers cartoon Oh, time too. It, there was six. There, it's been confirmed. There are six episodes completely in the can. UPN never aired them, hmm. but they exist out there somewhere. The thing is, I mean, beyond the stupids, uh, everything else that he directed primarily was just like made for mostly made for TV stuff. Well, he'd done that before too. But, but, but I'm then, saying that it's not. I mean, but it, it's not so much that he like lost it. It's that he did one. Well, Beverly Hills Cop 3. Beverly I Hills Cop 3 is horrible. We're going to do a Beverly Hills Cop retrospective at some point. Oof. I have so much hatred for that movie, and I love the first two. I think a large part of Beverly Hills Cop 3, though, was Eddie Murphy's ego. But that's we'll get into that. We'll talk about the, the that. 
I think that after, you know, he did that and then Blues Brothers 2000, which just I don't think he did very well at all. At least I hope it didn't. And everything else is mostly just television. So that could very well have just been all right. Well, uh, I had a big bomb and I, you know, he couldn't uh, get work anymore because that's the thing about Hollywood. that's very odd is that you could be going along in your career and have a hit after hit after hit. And then all of a sudden you put out one pile of crap and they're like, whoa, wait a minute. You know, this this guy might not be bankable anymore. And it's like, well, so many things can factor into whether or not a movie succeeds or fails. There's been a lot of really good movies that, you know, just bombed at the box office for whatever reason. And then there's been a lot of garbage movies that end up being, you know, huge money makers. So I, I think that uh, they've just lost sight in what is good and bad anymore and are only looking at the bottom line. But sometimes it's the directors themselves. They almost seem to just kind of, fine, I'll do it. And they just kind of give up. Someone mm-hmm. like Bob Clark. You look at Bob Clark, children shouldn't play with dead things, dead of night, black Christmas, murder by decree, the first two Porky's movies, Christmas story. Of course, he did do Rhinestone in there, but we'll forgive him Rhinestone. Turk 182, he did an amazing story. He did From the Hip, which I think is a very, very underrated courtroom thriller. He unfortunately did the Loose Cannons movie with Dan Aykroyd in 1990. And then I'm looking at the rest of his filmography, and it's the Baby Geniuses movies and Karate Dog and kids films. And and it's like, what happened, Bob Clark? And from what I've gotten from interviews is he just kind of gave up. He said he kind of became sick of fighting. According to him, he had over a dozen projects in development throughout the 80s and 90s that never got made because of studio politics. And I think they just wore him down and he just kind of gave up. Like, this isn't worth fighting anymore. Let's make Baby Geniuses too. I agree. From the Hip is such an underappreciated movie that uh, I, I don't know why that movie's not more popular. It's very well written. It's very well directed. It's written, you uh, know who wrote it? David E. Kelly of The Practice uh, and Chicago Hope and stuff. Oh, wow. You and, can totally and, see his style. Because he... Judd Nelson's amazing in it, too. So is John Hurt. He is chilling in that. Yes! As the killer. But my, my problem with From the Hip, and even looking at it, I watched it a couple of years ago, my critical assessment is it does have the same problem I had when I saw it in the theater. It makes a tonal shift almost exactly halfway into the film. The first half is a wacky courtroom comedy. And then when Judd Nelson gets the murder case, it's a dark, dark serious courtroom drama after that and there's almost no humor to the point where it shifts in tone so quickly it almost jackknifes you that is still a problem with the film is how quickly it shifts tone but it works it's not like uh it's not like hitchcock where uh it starts off uh as a comedy and then about halfway through it gets dead serious like with that it didn't work but with from the hip because of the way that it was going I don't know. I thought it just flowed really well. It, it felt it felt natural to me. And I watched it not that long ago as well. I hadn't seen it in a few years. And uh, I, I don't know. I thought that one still worked. But I don't blame Bob Clark at all. I mean, I think that that sucks. Could you imagine uh, having the resume that he has? He's done some of the most influential movies ever made. And then to have to fight over every single project, I mean, that'll worry you, that'll wear you down on any job. Now, I'm not saying giving up is the right thing. I'm saying from my perspective, and I don't know what his financials were like or anything, I'd rather not make a movie at all than make the Baby Geniuses or Karate Dog movies. I'd rather just say, you know what? I'm retiring. I'm not doing this. 
Yeah, but some people, they don't have that luxury. Like, what if he, you know, needed the money? Uh, it could have been a very, you know, because back then uh, directors weren't getting paid millions of dollars to do a movie. Uh, they were getting paid however much it was, you know, uh, a nice amount, but, uh, you know, not a significant uh, $20 million payout like some folks do now. And so he was plugging along and doing his thing and making these relatively smaller films that were awesome, that were doing well enough. And then all of a sudden the industry changed and he had to, you know, accommodate. He had to basically make the movies that the studio was willing to allow him to direct. And the thing was, it could have very well been the carrot on the stick. Well, you direct baby geniuses and we'll maybe do one of your projects. And then he directs Baby Geniuses and then they're like, well, you know, it didn't do as well as we'd hoped. So maybe do this one more. And they keep kind of baiting him along and and it sucks. And that's one thing that is really ruining Hollywood is that you have the people in charge are not the creative individuals. They're the people with the money. They're the least creative people ever. They're only looking to, well, uh, this movie was a success. So uh, we want you to basically just copy that. And that's when you get kind of like the conundrum that we're in now, where we're just getting movie after movie that is just the same thing over and over again. Well, but then you've got someone like Sam Raimi, who was a fiercely original director in the early 80s when he came up. I'm not saying he's wrong for wanting to move out of the horror genre. I just think it didn't work. Like, right again, the 90s, Quick and the Dead. I didn't really think it was that good of a movie. A simple plan, way better idea than it was a film. Love of the Game, I hated it. The Gift felt like a fucking Lifetime movie to me. I despise the Spider-Man movies, and you kind of go, what happened, Sam? I get it, you didn't want to do horror anymore. That seems to have been the only place he worked, unfortunately. I liked uh, Spider-Man 1 and 2 very much. Uh, 3, you could tell he didn't want to do it, and he openly said that he did it to fulfill his contractual obligation. He really didn't want to do it. He he had a whole bunch of different visions. He wanted Vulture to be the villain, and they insisted on uh, it, you know shoehorning Venom in there. And when that happened, much like uh, Bob Clark, he just kind of was like, all right. Whatever, you know, I'll make the I'll make, this, I'll make your movie. I'll make your movie. And it ended up coming out. And it was a pile of garbage. Drag me to hell. I know a lot of people said it was Sam's, you know, great return to horror. No, it like, wasn't. It was terrible. I didn't like I didn't like drag me to hell. But I mean, that's there's a lot of like really big horror fans out there that adore the movie. And I I thought it was jump scare the movie. I, I hated drag me to hell. Uh, I thought the production design and all that was very good. It did have a very Sam Raimi feel to it. It felt more like Sam Raimi uh, had in a decade. But uh, it just it just didn't work for me. And then Oz the Great and Powerful, $350 million piece of crap. Yeah. <laughs> Oz the Great and Powerful was us watching Sam Raimi come on a screen for two and a half hours for $350 million. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm like watching it and I'm like, you know, I really wish you'd go back and do another Dark Man or something. <laughs> like, yeah, Sam Raimi, uh, I, I think that he he still has it. He just kind of maybe chooses not to use it. Like, he doesn't really want to go back to do that. But I would love for him to go back and make another uh maybe not another evil dead because he's doing that with uh, ash versus the evil dead and that seems to be going over really well but but, but here's the thing about that though he directed the two, the the double episode pilot and you look at the behind the scenes he looks like he's having so much fun on that 
It looks like he's back in his element finally. It might be he just said, I don't want to do horror anymore, but that's really the only place he seems to shine, it seems, is horror. Well, the other thing, too, is maybe he just needed a reminder, because if you look, he doesn't have anything else mapped out. So maybe he'll do another horror movie, you know, next after this. Uh, And what the hell, you know, uh, it might have just been that he needed a little jolt. Say, hey, you are really good in horror because you're passionate about it. He can go back to making these smaller production movies where he has full creative control. I think that uh, he still has it. It's just a matter of getting him to remember where he put it. Well, that's the other thing I wanted to bring up. Is it just inevitable that when a filmmaker gets to a certain point in their career, they just, and I'm not saying lose it, but they inevitably have to start going down? I mean, Quentin Tarantino has a great quote here. It's a little bit long, but I'm going to read this quote. I kind of agree with and I kind of don't. If you're a rock and roll artist and then some, then at some point you start singing big, big band tunes, you can do it and you can be really happy, but there's a difference in your career. People change. There's, there's the rock and roll time and there's the big band time. I don't want that. Where I'm coming from, I'm thinking about when I'm dead and gone and some kid, maybe who's not even born yet, sees one of my movies and digs it and he says, this guy's fucking got it going on. I want to see something else by this guy. But he doesn't know who the fuck I am. So he doesn't know how to go to Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs. He's just going to pick the easiest one he can get his hands on. And if that's one of the ones I make during my old man years after I've lost it, well, I've lost him right then and there, unquote. I kind of agree with him. Unfortunately, as time goes along is what he's is saying is when people like Bob Clark are making the karate dog movies and whatnot, and Sam Raimi is making baseball movies and that, that's going to be what people most likely in the mainstream are going to encounter first. And they're not going to go, what, this guy did horror movies too? Well, I mean, that's why Tarantino said uh, he's going to stop at 10. He said his 10th movie is going to be his last movie. And I think that that's a certain... I don't want to say a certain set of balls, but like it's got to take a lot of guts to be like, you know what? I'm going to, you know, put a cap on this. I want to stop before I get shitty. Because Kevin Smith said the same thing, what, three times now that this is his last? He's the Ozzy Osbourne of filmmaking retirement. Every year is his last movie, and then the next year is announced he's got another movie coming out. Well, Kevin, like, I think Kevin kind of reassessed things after his uh, father died. And uh, he decided that uh, he really wanted to continue because what happened, he was doing all of the Jersey movies, which were fine. I love the, the, the clerk's universe, so to speak. And what happened, I think, a large part was that he started branching out into different genres. He did Red State. He did Cop Out, which Cop Out I didn't like. But he was trying new things. And I think he kind of rediscovered, oh, yeah. I can do other genres and still incorporate a lot of my, uh, you know, elements into there and make it fun and entertaining and make it a Kevin Smith movie. And so I think that that factored into a lot of it. I know he's doing another horror movie. I know he did Yoga Hosers, which is the uh, the hockey movie that he always wanted to do. And now and he's got the- he did the horror movie Tusk, which was pathetically bad. Tusk was an experimental film. There are a lot of directors that blew up in his face. No, Tusk. What are you kidding? Like Tusk cost 
Oh no, I, I'm not. I'm not talking like that. Very I mean, little... it was a terrible movie, though, is what I'm saying. No, it was a terrible movie for you. Tusk has a very like rabid fan base, and they like the fact that it was so different. And I applaud him for doing something that was that bizarre and trying to make it work, because that's the kind of movie that we need. We need now. It may not work. But it, you know, it may not work, especially for a mainstream audience, but you're going to find people that do enjoy it. And if the genre or not the genre, if the industry is ever going to continue to grow, you need people that are going to push boundaries, that are going to do unusual stuff, that are going to make human centipede type films, that are going to make, uh, you know, movies like Tusk that are different and weird and not really aimed at anyone in particular because that is where people learn and that is how stuff grows and that is how the industry stops from becoming the same old same old anymore it's like all right well there's plenty of movies about comic book movies which i'm not shitting on because i love a lot of all the comic book movies that are coming out but how many movies are there where there is a crazy mad scientist that is turning the apple kid into a walrus why not? You know, we need more bizarre, weird-ass movies like that. Okay, what about arguably the greatest filmmaker that lost it in the 90s? Tim Burton. Tim Burton, you look at his short films from the 70s. I personally didn't like Pee-wee's Big Adventure, but it was directed beautifully. You, you know, he has Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Beetlejuice, even Batman, which I'm not a fan of. I thought his direction was fine. Then 1990 hits. And with the with the exception of Ed Wood coming out in 94, you, you know, you've got Edward Scissorhands, which I did not like at all. You got Batman Returns, which I thought was a train wreck. Mars Attacks. What the hell happened there? Sleepy Hollow. Are you high? Planet of the Apes. You're not even trying anymore. Big Fish. Good effort. Bad execution. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Corpse Bride. Sweeney Todd. Alice in Wonderlands. Dark Shadows. Frank and Weenie. Big Eyes. You're not even trying anymore, Tim Burton. You're just doing. You're just putting in your time. You, you, he's basically turning in. Right around the '90s, he decided, "I'm just going to show up and punch a clock." At this point, Pee Wee's Big Adventure is possibly my favorite comedy of all time. Beetlejuice is brilliant. Beetlejuice Batman... is just so original and unique. Yeah, Beetlejuice, there's really nothing quite like it. Batman, I think, is terrific. I think it still holds up. I'm not really huge on Edward Scissorhands, but I like that it was just so weird. I think Batman Returns of the Tim Burton Batman movies, actually of that grouping of um, Batman movies, Batman Returns is by far the best of those four. Ed Wood, I think, is brilliant. Mars Attacks, I think, is very funny for uh, what it is. Sleepy Hollow amazing production design and i do really enjoy it i think that there there are some issues i think it's a little slow but i still think that it's a good movie and then planet of the apes happened i think what happened that kind of kicked off like his whole remake phase where it was like hey uh well because sleepy hollow a little bit because it was i mean it was just a readaptation of the uh of the, the sleepy hollow but um planet of the apes was actually the first like real remake uh that he did i hated it i thought Hell, it was by one the of time the... he got the frankenweenie he's literally remaking his own stuff he's remaking his own stuff which yeah and then uh you know he goes down the line all right so plan of the apes was garbage i actually still haven't seen big fish charlie and the chocolate factory was terrible corpse bride was a way for him to make a movie and make everybody think that he still was the one who directed uh nightmare before christmas 
which uh, Henry Selleck didn't. Yeah, Henry Selleck did, and uh, that like is one of those movies where I always oh it's people oh it's Nightmare for Christmas my tape my favorite Burton movie. <laughs> well, it sucks that he didn't do it. Go watch Corpse Bride and see why he didn't do it because Corpse Bride's terrible. Sweeney Todd I hated. Alice in Wonderland I hated. Dark Shadows, I thought was mediocre. I've never seen Frank and Weenie because I really don't have any interest in it. And I know a lot of people have said that Beetlejuice or Beetlejuice. I know a lot of people have said that Big Eyes is really good. But I just at this point, I just don't care. And it's depressing because seriously, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, Batman Returns and Ed Wood. Some of my all time favorite movies. They are movies that I absolutely adore. And to see him just turn into this remake factory it's depressing because I know that he's he's somebody who just he lost it. He absolutely lost it. And I don't know if he'll be able to get it back. I, I think, I think I kn- he got swallowed by the system, really, because, yeah, th- th- there comes a point when you're called a genius for so long, you start to believe your own hype. Like, you know, I, I know you disagree with me on Joss Whedon, but I think that's what happened to Joss Whedon. He was called a genius for the entirety of the 1990s to the point where he started to go, you know what? Maybe I am a genius. And no, I think that's I think... what happened to Tim Burton, too. He was called a genius so many times in the 80s that I think he started to believe he was a genius. And so he started to act like he believed it. I think with Joss, Joss is a little bit too much of a uh, like he, he comes off as as occasionally like like not smug, but like uh, somewhat arrogant. But he's really i think much more shy and introverted than he appears sometimes and he takes stuff way too much to heart so i think that uh with him quitting uh the marvel universe and saying he's not going to do any more of those movies i think it was just a matter of he was beaten by the system over the years and then after he started doing those he gets you know oh people are, are starting to talk about my stuff again and he started to get big again and then he was realizing well you know if i'm going to do the stuff that i want to i really should do it on a smaller scale and uh, i think that's really more of where his heart lies i think that he he has a lot of good in him so i don't think he ever really lost it i think he kind of briefly lost his mind there a little bit but um it's uh, especially uh nothing hurt hurt my soul more than seeing him taking pictures with anita sarkeesian uh, like, oh. I, no, I, I know, I know what you mean. Oh. I mean, it, it's the same thing with Tarantino. Now, I haven't seen Hateful Eight yet. Tarantino has been called a genius for so long. You hear him in interviews, and he acts like he thinks he's a genius. And but I think he's Tim, always acted like that. No, you go back, and he he was much more grounded yet arrogant in the Pulp Fiction Reservoir Dogs days than he is now. Now he's like, you will treat me as I deserve to be treated. And I think that's kind of where Tim Burton got. He got to a point where they were all calling him a genius and the savior of Hollywood, and I think he started to believe it. He wasn't putting forth his best effort anymore. Of this era that we're talking about, there was one person I was going to include on this list, but then after looking back at his filmography, I said, no, he actually corrected himself, and that was David Cronenberg. So I'm looking at Cronenberg, and I'm like, Shivers, Rabid, The Brood, Scanners, Videodrome. I didn't personally like the adaptation of The Dead Zone, but The Dead Zone, The Fly, again, I didn't like, but I know a lot of people do. And then I'm like, well, then there was Dead Ringers. 
And then he did some TV stuff. And I'm like, well, that was really bad. Dead Ringers was really bad. And then he came back with Naked Lunch. And I'm like, all right, that was a great movie. And then M. Butterfly, not so good. Crash, not so good. And then he comes back with Exxxtends. And then, and then he comes back with History of Violence and Eastern Promises and that. And I'm like, you know what? Cronenberg actually, I think he saw the hole he was falling into and quickly stood up and climbed back out. Unlike a lot of the filmmakers we've talked about tonight. I think Cronenberg corrected himself occasionally for whatever reason you're going to put out a bad movie and it's not like Cronenberg I think he made the movies that he wanted to make and sometimes they didn't work like no movie that he made ever didn't feel like a Cronenberg movie there were just some that maybe didn't work as well I don't know history Uh, of violence really doesn't feel Cronenbergian it's true, but it's still a phenomenal movie. I, I'm not I'm not talking about the quality of the film. I'm just talking about his personal style does not come through in History of Violence. No, but I mean, well, I don't know. It's pretty brutal. Uh, I mean, but it's not it uh, it's not as weird as like Videodrome and uh, Existence and that kind of stuff. So maybe that's more along the line. But it still never felt like he sold out. He made continuously the movies that he wanted to make. It wasn't. And the thing is, his movies never cost a crap ton of money. It wasn't like um, with uh, you know Sam Raimi, where all of a sudden his budget his budgets are skyrocketing and the uh, the quality is kind of. But uh, his stuff always remained relatively lower, considerably by compare, you know, twenty million dollars versus two hundred million. But uh, they always felt you know that he he never phoned it in they were even his even like m butterfly and stuff they never felt like it was just he was a movie making it they was a paycheck but then you've got arguably the king of the world you look at uh james cameron you look at how brilliant all of his all of his 80s stuff was and then you go into 1991 you got terminator 2 all right we're still doing good then you got true lies which i thought was a disaster Boo. I hated that movie. I'm sorry. You're wrong. Hated it. And, and wrong. then, you know, and then of course he makes Titanic, which I did enjoy, but it's got its issues. Doesn't need to be three freaking hours long. And yes, then, and then he just lost himself in this avatar thing. Like he says, he's going to finish out his career in the avatar universe. And it's like, James, did you watch avatar? It was a piece of shit. What universe? This movie's a piece of shit. And your three sequels are probably going to be pieces of shit if they're based on this piece of shit. It's like, where's okay, my 80s James Cameron again? Okay, let's look at it from this perspective. Puts out Titanic, which is the highest grossing film in history. He starts to do, you know, more. He spends a lot of time uh, researching Titanic, you know, doing the dives and looking at that and takes time away to, to do that. And then develops new technology in 3D so he can make this next movie, Avatar, which well, is a movie that he wanted. he's stuff at this point, too. He's but, but I'm saying as far directing. as du- directing wise, you know, he takes time off to, to work on, uh, in, you know, working on getting uh, new technology. And he finally is able to make the movie that he wants to make. He wanted to make uh, Avatar. It was this movie that he had kind of had on his mind for a while. And after over 10 years, comes back and dethrones the previous highest budget or highest money making movie in history with the next highest grossing movie in history is the first and probably only time in history that will ever happen. So, uh, he, 
really, really is into the Avatar universe. And while I thought that Avatar um, was more visually stunning, if you saw it in a movie theater uh, and got into the whole like that 3D thing, I could see what he was going for. It doesn't quite have the same impact on, on home video. And because the story uh, is wafer thin. Well, the story is is Pocahontas, but if he, ha- I mean, who for all we know, he might have uh, something really amazing planned for the next three. I personally would rather him go back and make some other stuff. But you know what? As far as I'm concerned, he's never made a bad movie. And if this is the avenue that he wants to go down, sure. You know, he's he's his last two movies were the two highest grossing films in history, although I know Star Wars is probably going to dethrone it fairly soon. But regardless, it still was monumental moneymakers that no one ever thought that was going to happen. And if he wants to continue down this avenue, sure. You know, I I don't think that they're going to be, you know, Terminator quality. You know, this is the thing that he's chosen. I don't think that they're going to be bad movies. So I don't think he's ever lost it. I don't think that, uh, you know, uh, that he's ever, as of currently, has put out a bad movie. Okay, what about the go-to boy for big-budget Hollywood that still tries to bring the old-style sensibility in, Ridley Scott? Let's end tonight on Ridley Scott. You got the, you know, he comes up through Alien, Blade Runner, Legend, Black Rain, and then... I've, I never understood the, the success of Thelma and Louise. I just straight up never liked that movie. But again, the early 90s, you got Thelma and Louise. But it's a hit, but fine. 1492, Conquest of Paradise, giant bomb. White Squall, bomb. G.I. Jane, bomb. Gladiator puts him back on top, but it's a terrible movie. Hannibal, Boo. terrible movie. Black Hawk Down, terrible movie. Matchstick Man, oh. terrible movie. Kingdom of Heaven, terrible movie. A Good Year, Body of Lies, American Gangster, Robin Hood, all terrible, terrible films. Exodus, Gods and Kings, terrible movie. Prometheus, as much as I like it, it's a bad movie. It's really poorly no, it's written. It's got so many plot holes that I can't watch it without trying to pull my hair out, yet for some reason I still really like the movie. Ridley Scott really hasn't made a good movies since the early 90s so why is he still the go-to and and a lot of these you can't say because they constantly make money a lot of these movies came they made under their budget so while they may have been hits in quotes they did not make their budget back what about ridley scott do you think he's still trying to bring that 70s 80s sensibility or has he completely sold out and no i haven't seen the martian yet but everyone tells me it's fantastic yeah, well, <laughs> didn't The Martian just win? Uh, best was it best comedy, comedy at the Golden Globes? <laughs> a friend of mine, he lost his shit when he when he read that in the USA Today. He couldn't believe that, and I'm like, again, I haven't seen the movie, so I can't judge. But it didn't look like a comedy from the trailer. No, and I'm the same way. I haven't seen it either. But a lot of people were just, um, best comedy. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think that um. I think that Ridley Scott is still bringing a 70s, 80s sensibility to his movies. Um, I I think that uh, he's made some brilliant movies. I love Alien, Blade Runner, Legend, Black Rain. Thelma and Louise is one of those movies that came out at the right time. And so I... When Thelma and Louise came out, I was 16. Maybe I just didn't... I wasn't the right audience. I just didn't understand why this movie was so popular. It was a very 
for lack of a better term, it was a very like female empowering movie that came out at a time when there wasn't really a lot of female empowerment stuff going on uh, in cinema, that is. So it just it hit at the right time. I mean, there's a lot of movies that just for whatever reason, they just happen to come out at the right time and, and are big hits. But I think that it's a, it's shot well. And uh, I like the fact that it, it ends on a very like down you know it's supposed to be an empowering but it's a very down note ending um it's a suicide but, uh, yeah, it's a, well i wasn't gonna say if in case anybody hasn't you know seen a 25 year old movie or however yeah they they freaking kill themselves uh, 1492 i think that uh that was like you get to a certain point where you just want to do a big sprawling epic for whatever reason and it unfortunately just wasn't good it, wasn't good and weren't there a lot of christopher columbus movies yeah, there, were actually, there, was a, there was another one out that same year which also bombed maybe that was yeah, they, just the wrong time for christopher columbus movies i think so because every now and then that'll come along where it's like why the hell was anybody making these? so that was bad um i had no real interest in white squall gi jane was another like female empowerment movie and if i'm not mistaken i think that one did pretty well gi jane did well at the box office but it wasn't a good movie right. No, it's not a it's not a good movie. But Viggo Mortensen's that... the only thing that's good about that film. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I, that's back when Demi Moore just had an ego that was gigantic, and uh, I wanted her to go away. Couldn't stand her and her nonsense. But uh, Gladiator, I thought was fantastic. It's just the production values in that, and I saw that in the theater such... and was just just like ass kicking eh, movie. I didn't like it. I'm sorry. That's fine. You know, you're wrong. Uh, Hannibal. Uh, Hannibal uh, looked Black- amazing. Hannibal was one of the most gorgeous films I'd ever seen at that point. Problem was, it wasn't very good. Uh, Black Down- Black Hawk Down uh, is a kick-ass action movie. I don't know how much real world, you know, I don't, ha- I don't know how close it matches to reality, but uh, I thought it was a kick-ass action movie. Matchstick Men, I've had a lot of people say was very good, but I've never seen it. Kingdom of Heaven, I had somebody give me their their DVD, but I still haven't watched it. A good year I never even heard of. Uh, didn't American Gangster do well? American Gangster did well, but it, it wasn't the blockbuster that they wanted it to be. Uh, had no real interest in Body of Lies, no interest in Robin Hood. Prometheus, I thought, was amazing. I said it was one of my favorite films of 2012. And after that, oh God, The Counselor. I remember everybody, like, I heard that was terrible. I haven't seen it yet. I It I, didn't really... Yeah. It I didn't do the, anything for me. Yeah, the counselor was a much, uh, and again, one of those great idea, not good movie. Exodus, I haven't seen, and I heard nobody uh, saw I mean, Exodus. Was... That's the point. That's why it bombed so hard. <laughs> no one saw it. It came out, and, and everyone uh, went. Um, you do know you cast all of these Egyptians with white actors, right? Not only mildly uh, racist, but okay. Yeah, God, I never even, I don't even think I heard of it until now. Um, Again, and then, because nobody went to see it. Because nobody went to see it, apparently. They didn't even run that, I don't remember seeing a trailer for it. And uh, The Martian, I've, uh, you know, it, it won Best Comedy, so apparently it's funny. And <laughs> my only gripe with The Martian, and this is not the fault of the movie, but the trailer We're rescuing should... Matt Damon again. Yeah, Matt Damon, st- knock it off. Stay home. Stop. You gotta stop, stop going being out. Lost. Stop being lost and stop having people lose their lives rescuing you. So, do you think that, like all the filmmakers we talked about, and so many others, like George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola and all that, do you think that that it was the system that changed them as we moved into the 1990s, or do you think just 1990s audiences changed? To the point where 
they, the filmmakers, had to change along with it, and it just turned out to not be good in the most cases. Why do you think a lot of these, because you can't deny, other than you know an exception here or there, that almost all of these filmmakers had a distinct downturn in quality as the 1990s came in. I blame the system more than anything. I think that uh, if you were to talk to a lot of these directors, the majority of the ones, with the exception of, uh, you know, like somebody like Tim Burton, I think would be like, no, I got better, you know. And uh, But you talk to somebody like John Carpenter uh, or uh, Romero or somebody, I think that they would be a lot more honest with you. And they don't have, you know, they're not going to pull any punches. And I think that they uh, were beaten by the system and they see how, uh, because seriously, I mean, I did, uh, when I talked about Waterworld, I was talking about how much the industry changed in the 90s they uh, they went from these small movie theaters that would only run you know two to five movies like five at like a maximum and they switched to like the multiplexes where they would have these giant screens big seats and 50 you know 20 movies at once and and movies became a bigger deal uh, they started putting more money into them they started pushing the actors and actresses more it and it a changed quali- it became a quantitative media instead of a qualitative media yeah it became well let's put out you know a movie that doesn't necessarily have to be good but it has to star this person and has to do this and uh, I think that that really had an effect on a lot of old school directors because they were basically priced out of business. They used to be able to make movies for uh, under 10 million dollars. And now all of a sudden there's these giant budgeted films coming along and the people that are equipped to kind of deal with that nonsense are these music video directors. And uh, I keep crapping on music video directors, but it's true. We did a whole episode on all the great music videos directed by great directors, though, remember? Mm-hmm. But uh, that's why I'm not saying that they're all bad, but it's just uh, it's just a, a, like a crutch to fall back on. Well, it's this, you know, rather than going into it for hours and hours. You got a lot of the older directors that uh, they would hire people who they had worked with, uh, who they knew were excellent actors. You know, your Donald Pleasance kind of characters. And now, you know, a movie's not going to sell with Donald Pleasance in it. It's going to sell with Jim Carrey in it. And uh, they they were going more in that direction. And the old directors just uh, were trying to adapt. But the studios were looking at them as like the old, uh, we don't need them anymore. And we're pushing like the newest and greatest thing out the door. And consequently, they were making a lot of money, but they were hurting the industry. I, I agree with that because there were a couple I left off this list of uh, big foreign directors like Dario Argento. He's still making movies. Most people are like, Argento made movies past the 90s? Yeah, so did Fulci. They weren't very good because the American audience for Italian exploitation was gone. So again, just like you, I blame the industry. Because in the 80s, Fulci and, and Argento ruled the drive-ins, didn't they? By the 90s, oh, God, yeah. By the 90s, they're still putting out product and people are going, oh, wow, they're still around. Okay. So, you know, the industry changes. And I think there were two tipping points, one in each direction. Between 75 and 77, you had Jaws and Star Wars come out, which tipped it in favor of the auteur director. And then in 1989, it tipped it backwards with Batman when the studios took back control. So in a weird way, even though New Hollywood really, as we discussed in the previous episodes, were, you know, ended in the early 80s, I think it still kind of went on until 89. And I think Batman was the official end of, yeah, you don't have control anymore. This is a studio medium. 
That said, Cecil, where can we find you constantly being wrong? You can find me constantly being correct and uh, and not arguing with this Josh character uh, over at uh, escapistmagazine.com, goodbadflix.com, and all of your favorite social media outlets. You can find me constantly schooling Cecil and telling him why he is wrong at 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. And guys, you need to go to Peter at Zinematica at Twitter or find him on Facebook and send him all of the goofballs everyone clip from the simpsons and he since he hasn't heard this episode and he wasn't here he's not going to get it so it'll be funny keep one foot in the gutter one fist in the gold Love
Radio Drome is a 1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.